0: you know, I think you're really funny. I think you should draw cartoons. It's like never had occurred to me. I said, what on earth would I, you know, what would I do cartoons about? And she said, your, your life, you know? <laughs> like, oh, and, you know, having a lot of frustration and difficulty in your life, if you can find a way to make fun of it, that is a very wonderful survival skill.
1: I am the only person to have walked in space and gone to the deepest point in the ocean. Hi. Before we take off, I have a gift for you. I believe that no matter where you are today, an active thirst for knowledge will help unlock your ability to live a life of meaning and happiness. So I'm sharing some lessons I've learned on my road less traveled. Over at KathySullivanExplorers.com, you'll find my seven astronaut tips to improving your life on earth. When you sign up, I'll send them to you And also make sure you're the first to discover future podcast episodes and learn more about exciting adventures ahead. Just head on over to kathysullivanexplorers.com. Did you know there are only 250 syndicated comic strips in the United States? In other words, only 250 out of the thousands of talented artists and cartoonists in the country are making a steady living out of their cartoon art. Here's another startling number. Only 12 of those 250 are women. My guest today is one of those 12, Jan Elliott, creator of the long-running syndicated comic strip Stone Soup. The long and winding road Jan took from avid young doodler to syndicated cartoonist holds lots of lessons for all of us about continual learning, persistence, resilience, and the importance of holding true to one's creative self. As we explore that winding road together today, she'll share a lot of interesting anecdotes about other well-known cartoonists, as well as the inspirations for Stone Soup's beloved characters and the evolution of the cartoon business into the digital age. Jan, Elliott it is so delightful to have you on the podcast. It's so appropriate that we just open with a laugh. That's...
0: I love it. I do love it. It's so nice to be here. Thank you for inviting me, Kathy.
1: My pleasure. You know, I really want to give our audience a little bit of a background of how and where we met because it it is one of my favorite stories and it's a cherished memento in my office. Uh, Me too. (laughs) Yeah. So it turns out, little known fact, it turns out there's quite a prestigious cartoon library in Columbus, Ohio. And uh, every other year, I think it was convention of cartoonists would meet here. Right. 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 And one of those years, I had another cartoonist friend who called me up and said, look, let's go grab dinner. We haven't chatted in a while. And we did. And I took her back to her hotel. We sat down to have a nightcap and finish our gossip and talk. And this whole other swarm of cartoonists started coming in, none of whom I recognized by face, of course, because I know them through their cartoons and their characters. But Barbara, I think, Jan, you were one of the first ones back. And Barbara said, Oh, hi. Here, this is Jan Elliott. And your name I recognized because I loved Stone Soup. And I right away sort of started fangirling, but you started fangirling (laughs) over the astronaut stuff.
0: Oh, my God, yeah.
1: And the next thing I know, I'm signing my autograph on some page in your notebook and then, you know, four or five other cartoonist's notebook. And and as it all clicked, I realized these are all the strips I read every day and every Sunday. And wait, I'm signing for them. (laughs) What am I getting out of this? And And I think I complained about that at one point. And you, in a split second, whipped your notebook to another page and went, and in maybe 30 seconds, had whipped out a one-scene stone soup cartoon about Val and Joan and Alex and Holly and Max being wowed at meeting me. And I think you shamed your colleagues into submission because four of them then proceeded to do the same thing. And I have the four framed side by side on my library wall, or four spectacular cartoonists I've always loved wrote a cartoon for me in 30 seconds each.
0: <laughs> I'm so happy it worked out that way.
1: I'm so <laughs> <Yeah>. happy. <laughs> Bill, Billy Keene is at a family circle. He might have taken in a minute and a half.
0: Oh, yeah, right. Perfecting right, right. his, but yeah. yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, So, the world will know you as the long-running syndicated cartoonist Jan Elliott and creator of Stone Soup. But let's roll the tape back to the beginning and start with the young Jan Elliott. Tell us a bit about where you grew up and what your family was like, and what some of your earliest memories are of who the young Jan Elliott was.
0: I was raised outside of Chicago in a suburb called St. Charles, which at the time, was the last town before you hit the cornfields. And I was the youngest of three, and my mother was tired, so I had a lot of free time. And, you know, <laughs> nobody cared where I was as long as I was home by dinner. And I took full advantage of that. So I pretty much spent my childhood with a, a tomboy friend and her twin brother up in trees and in knee-deep in creeks and Jumping off garage roofs and whatever other trouble we could get into. (laughs) I love (laughs) it. And I was, uh, my brother and sister were the star students in the family, and I was the artistic one. Actually, also was an excellent student, but nobody really paid attention because I wasn't, I didn't care enough about grades. If you could get B's and B pluses without studying... Good enough. <laughs> <laughs> Why wouldn't you? That's easy. So uh but anyway, I was the doodler and so all your school
1: notebooks had doodles everywhere on the page.
0: Yes, and I, you know, took all the art classes. My mother did get me an art teacher in high school, which was actually really gen I thinking back on it, I, I thought that was quite amazing. It was a young woman, but very, very talented woman and You know, I learned some kind of classical stuff from her, like drawing drapery and figures and things like that. But, yeah, you know, I worked on I was always involved with theater, but I was doing the sets and involved with yearbook. But I was doing the little doodly cartoons and I had no thought for my future, no idea what I would do with any of it. But, you know, I was in the present always.
1: But you loved the doodling and the drawing. I mean, that was feeding your soul.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely.
1: Yeah. So I was going to ask you if you were Alex or Holly growing up, your two characters from Stone Soup, but which of them or what mix do you think you
0: were? I was 100% Alex, 100% Alex. I once rode my bike with my T-shirt tucked into my shorts so that the garter snake I had found at the lake could be inside my shirt (laughs) and not fall out.
1: (laughs) Very very Alex, (laughs) very Alex. Oh,
0: yeah. (laughs) <laughs> I remember picking leeches off my legs with some disgust, but it didn't keep me out of the creek. <laughs> I, I love it.
1: Not having had such an innate and intrinsic artistic bent, I'm really curious about what it's like, what it feels like, or what you're thinking about, or what, what awareness, if any. Very young, when you discover just doodling gives you joy, is that kind of what it's like?
0: And so it just propels because of the joy of doing it? Yeah. I, you know, it's funny that you say that cause I don't, I mean, yes, it was, it was fun and I was good at it, which, you know, anything you're good at, that's a reinforcement right there. You know, I suppose, you know, people, people admire drawing so much that it's, you know, you kind of feel rewarded because people are fascinated to watch you do it. But yeah, I just like to doodle. And I, you know, I did what a lot of young girls do. I drew a lot of horses and a lot of you know, girls in prom dresses because you know you, when you're 11, you think maybe I'll have those boobs someday. I don't know. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I didn't draw wedding dresses; that wasn't really where you know. But yeah, you know, and lots of horses. So really, I don't know what it is with young girls and horses, but honestly, I loved drawing horses and and you know anything else doodling. I can concentrate better if I'm doodling while I'm listening to something
1: oh interesting
0: my mind will stay on the lecture or whatever otherwise uh, my mind will wander and if I do the doodles then you know it kind of keeps me it looks like I'm not paying attention but and and actually I taught a class at the university here one term on creating comics and I was a little irritated the first day because of how many of my students were doodling until I remembered. <laughs> that was you. <laughs> that was me. That's exactly what you do in class. You doodle.
1: <laughs> so theres it's not occupying any conscious part of your mind, like, wait, is that the right shape? Or uh, where is this going? It's just that spontaneous. Right, right. That's fascinating. Yeah. I clearly have a better developed other side of the brain, I
0: would have to say. <laughs>
1: Did you take art classes in middle school and high school, like actual instruction classes?
0: I did. I did. I had a really fine art teacher, a really excellent art teacher in middle school. He had uh, just started. He'd been working at Hallmark Cards, actually. And he was very demanding, and that was good for me. In high school, I had a, a very kind t- teacher, but in high school, art is often also the place where a lot of students are just trying to get credits to graduate. So the classes weren't very inspiring which I think is why my mother hired the art teacher for me and then when I went to college I went to well classic cartoonist behavior I didn't <laughs> actually get around to applying <laughs> to college until August literally August before the September I should
1: have gone so you've graduated yes and you now you're starting, oh, wait, summer's about done.
0: <laughs> uh, my friends are packing. Oh. <laughs> oh. What did oh. I miss? My friends are packing. I guess I do want to go to college. My blessed father, my dear father, ever patient, called around to find a school that would take me without the SATs because I hadn't even taken the SATs. Oh, my. Yeah. But I had good grades and the school he found was Carbondale, Southern Illinois University it was kind of our state party school. So getting somebody with a B plus A minus average was like, sure, just yeah, come on down. You raised, you raised the curve. <laughs> you can take the SATs after you get here. It's like, okay. And uh, so I went to this place in Southern Illinois. Turns out They had a fabulous art department, and Buckminster Fuller was in residence there in the design. Bucky Fuller? Bucky Fuller. Oh, my. Yeah. The campus design program was all in domes. Wow. On campus. And I never met him, but his influence was there. And it was not an academically challenging school, and so I really didn't have to work hard to keep up grades, and I could focus a lot more on artwork. So it was actually kind of a perfect place for me because I, you know, was not stressful and I had kind of a few missteps getting started. Art departments were not always friendly to women. This is what kind of time frame? Uh, 68. Okay. 1968, 69. You know, the painting instructor wasn't interested in anyone in the room except this the 18-year-old man at the back of the room who was throwing paint at a huge canvas, you know.
1: But they just, I mean, how can that be with all of the artwork we now know by women? What was going on in their minds?
0: Well, you know, it was sexist. I mean, it just was. In painting and drawing, you know, there were hardly any, I don't think there were any female instructors. I don't know about graduate students. But I just didn't feel very welcome until one day I wandered down into the basement of this building. It was an ancient building. and. There were all these big, strong women making pots is where the ceramics program was. Ah, and their graduate students were more than 50 percent female. And they were these great women from Tennessee and Kentucky. And there was a great instructor. All the instructors were men, but they had really feminist wives and they were (laughs) therefore enlightened, you know. So the role of women upstairs
1: was to be a model for the developing male artists and downstairs, the women had a role as artists.
0: Yeah. yeah. Interesting. And well, highly respected as artists. And the, you know, I was talking to these women about not knowing where I fit and they were just like, come on down, you know, yeah. so we'll figure this out. Yeah. I'm
1: curious to back up a little bit. You're having this wonderful, not very difficult time through high school and you said you really had no thought or clue for what you were going to do, which path your life would take. What were your parents doing then? Were they concerned about that? Were you know, nudging you now and then, reading you the riot act periodically? What do you think they thought? Is this still, might maybe you'll go to college, but then you'll get married kind of time frame?
0: Yes. My mother, yeah, honestly, because I had these very scholarly older siblings, my parents looked at me my mother would say things like, Well, honey, it's good you're good thing you're artistic. You'll build you'll make a beautiful house someday, you know. Ah. Even at 16 and 17, I was rolling my eyes in my head. I mean, it's like, really? You know? <laughs> and you know, no, they didn't take me to see any colleges. I think they just didn't think I was that bright or really college material. And, you know, my father started looking. I, I did toy with the idea of going to the art institute in chicago which would have which made sense to them except that the art institute in chicago does not have dorms and so you have to live in the why or something i didn't turn 18 until the fall after my senior year so I, i'm 17 i'm a little too young for the why i just think a little too young for the why and it all seemed too overwhelming but, you know my dad was talking about well maybe uh you know, in his world, he, he worked in insurance. He he had some ideas like court reporter, you know, things you could do with the short training. I mean, I, you know, my sister went to Oberlin, my brother went to IIT. I think they just didn't know what to do with me, yeah. really. Yeah, I, I don't think the idea of like, we'll just pick a nice school in a nice city and get a good liberal arts education and see what happens, which is what would have been the best guidance for me. Not in their lexicon. Right, not in their lexicon, no, and and I think they were kind of hands-off parents, and my sister and brother were much more self-driven than I was, so.
1: Yeah, interesting.
0: Yeah, but- I mean, once I picked it, they were completely supportive, and I didn't have to work through college. They made sure it happened, and.
1: Yeah. So you fall in love with ceramics. The the, the doodler finds clay. <laughs>
0: yeah, the doodler found clay, yes. <laughs>
1: And did you consider continue with that? Your degree is in art from Southern Illinois, right? Was it with the ceramics?
0: No, it isn't. I studied ceramics for two years, but a lesson to the young cartoonist: use birth control, because I was I became pregnant in my second year of college. Uh-huh. And I was dating a very nice man who was very excited about that, and we got married. There, you know, it wasn't a tragedy, except that I ended up dropping out of school. Then the end of my sophomore year to have this baby and he was older and graduated sooner we went off to Alaska where he got his first job uh, teaching job because they were paying basically double up there and meanwhile our pals from the ceramics program he actually became quite a good potter even though he was in the teaching program he started following me into the ceramics lab and he was actually one of the better ones, you know, just kind of teaching himself and they liked it well enough to let him do it, you know, Yeah. come on, come on down again. So we're in Alaska and uh, several of our friends from the program have decided they want to come to Oregon and buy a farm and live communally and have pottery. This is 1970, 71, mm-hmm. you know. And we knew we wouldn't stay in Alaska for more than the one year. It was not that appealing. (laughs) (laughs)
1: Like the Um, the teaching version of Northern Exposure.
0: (laughs) Right. The teaching version. Exactly. Exactly. Um, I did do a lot of drawing while I was there, though, because I was kind of stuck in this little apartment in very rainy, you know, miserable weather.
1: Where were you? Anchorage or Juneau or Sitka? Sitka. Very rainy.
0: On an island, no less. (laughs)
1: small rainy and isolated
0: yeah yeah so I you know I did a lot of drawing to keep myself you know entertained but then we came to Oregon the next year and started this pottery and uh, I had another baby at some point I was volunteered to try and sell some of our pots at a market we'd heard about in Eugene because we were not in Eugene we were up near Albany And I drove to the Eugene Saturday Market and looked around Eugene for you know a day and thought, why don't we live here? This is much more our kind of town. University of Oregon is here. I had I intended to finish, absolutely intended to finish. Eventually, we moved to Eugene and I entered U of O, but I was not interested in trying to push my way into another art department. I just yeah, you know, and I didn't really think of myself. I didn't see a future for myself as a fine artist. That just did not, I just didn't see that. So I went into the English, I, I became an independent scholar, which was a program offered to 10 people a year where you could write your own major. And I basically combined English and women's studies. And because I loved to write um, and I loved literature. And so I studied uh, women writers for two years and wrote a thesis on that. and. If you look at it, I have all the education that is wrapped up in the strip I do the art training, the creative the writing, writing, and then the feminism.
1: But gathered in a kind of eclectic way, like, yeah, cool rocks you find on your hike that later become an
0: un- earth. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Oh, wow.
1: What a lovely <laughs> arrangement
0: they make. <laughs> that is perfect, Kathy. That's exactly right. <laughs>
1: So tell us, I, I, you've shared with me some of the story and, and written about it some, but tell me what catapulted you finally into cartooning.
0: My marriage ended, and I always don't want to make this sound like it was horrible because I am still very good friends with my first husband. Um, he lives 10 blocks from me. We have always parented our children as best we could together, but I, you know, I got married at 18, and... By the time I was 28, I was a very different person than I had been at 18. And so our marriage ended. And I. And your two kids are, your two girls are how old now? They're only about four and six, five and seven, something like that. Yeah. And we took care of them together. Neither one of us had any money, though. So it's not like I didn't have to work, you know. I mean, right. there were there were months when I paid the child support for him so that he wouldn't get in trouble with the courts. <laughs> you know, that's a sign of a good
1: ex-relationship. <laughs>
0: yeah. <laughs> yeah. I had a series of CETA jobs. Do you remember what CETA is? It no, was a, it was, it an was acronym.
1: a community something, something
0: something employee training act. Yeah. It was a, it was like a, a WPA program, a jobs program. It was because it, it was a, a time of very high unemployment. And so, you know, I, I worked at a, drove. that's when I drove the bookmobile and I was the editor of uh, an arts newsletter. And you sold cars.
1: I sold cars. Yeah. Waitressing, I'm sure. You had to have stints as a waitress.
0: Everyone I had does. 11 waitress jobs in my <laughs> life. Yes, I did. Starting at 15. Yes. Waitressing, once you've done it, you know, you can stick that in anywhere. You can get a job for two months and come home with money the first night. It is not a bad backup career. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so in this time frame, having little money, I was complaining to a friend, um, a woman friend that I didn't have. I couldn't afford art materials. I felt like the creative part of my life was sagging you know I I, first of all I didn't have money I also didn't have any time you know I'm working full-time and I'm you know I got kids in school and well you can imagine so this friend said well you know I think you're really funny I think you should draw cartoons and I it's like never had occurred to me and I said what on earth would I you know what would I do cartoons about And she said your your life you know (laughs) like oh And, you know, having a lot of frustration and difficulty in your life, if you can find a way to make fun of it, that is a very wonderful survival skill. And so I she basically offered to be my quote editor and I would have one cartoon due every week on Fridays and we would get together on Fridays uh, for for beers or something, you know, and I'm supposed to hand her a cartoon, one cartoon. Like a single panel or a strip? Anything at all. Okay. Anything at all was up to me. And believe it or not, I missed several of those deadlines. (laughs) (laughs) And she was appropriately stern, you know, disappointed. (laughs) Come on, Jan. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, uh, but I started, I did almost immediately start writing a strip and it was called Patience and Sarah. It was one mom, basically the, precursor to Joan and one kid the precursor to Holly the teenager which was kind of a blend of Holly and Alex really the sort of vampy teenager yeah yeah well yeah she, i think she was she was only about 11 okay starting into the
1: high drama phase
0: yes 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 yeah and snarky you know yeah. making fun of mom and eyes rolling yeah yeah and other characters included a waitress you know that's was the precursor to Val. She was a waitress. And at some point Joan worked with her and they weren't sisters in in the early strip. It was just, you know, random. So I, I worked with my friend Cynthia until literally I had 10 strips. That's it. 10 strips. And I decided to push myself to the next level of, of accomplishment or searching. And I took them to the editor of a local alternative newspaper to see, I wanted just a critique, you know, like what do you, you're a newspaper editor. What do you think of these? And he looked at them and to much to my surprise said, okay, we'll run this. Oh, I said, Oh, okay. You know, once a week, it was a once a week paper. So I gave him those 10 strips. Then I went off um, to Europe for six weeks because I'd been saving from my seated job. And I had a sister living in Austria. And so I had a desk, you know, place to be for free. And I left because I'd never gotten that trip. You know, all my friends went yeah. off to your college and, you know, I'd never been. So I came home from that trip and I got a phone call from him and he said, um, we need another strip for this week. <laughs> yeah, there went your cushion. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like, Oh shit, okay.
1: I've just gotten a bit of a cushion in the podcast. So as soon as you said I went to Europe for six weeks, I was going, ah! (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) exactly. (laughs) Uh, So there I was, you know, okay, I've got a deadline. And I started and I, you know, just made that happen, you know, and went back to a different job. But I had the, I mean, because I was making $10 a week on the cartoon. I mean, it was yeah nothing but it was such a wonderful launch point because i had this deadline i had to do something every week i did that for about almost 2 years so i you know i i got a little better not great but a little better at it and built up a base and archive of things i could send out and i did manage to get about 10 other small publications to run my strip in that time frame
1: I mean, you must have been getting some feedback from the editors. Were you ever hearing from readers besides having to produce? Was there any response back that was helping you shape or?
0: Um, I think I was hearing sometimes, you know, it's a small town. I would sometimes overhear people talking about it, which was really fun. The editor of the paper just loved it. He, as it turned out, was a new father. So his life was filled with (laughs) chaos as well. And no money. I mean, this paper did not make money. Eventually, they, it was shut down by the IRS because he never paid taxes. Oh, dear. So.
1: <laughs> <laughs> so you've you've grown up to this point as a doodler with some art training and ceramics. What What's the learning curve or the skill building curve between the doodler and drawer
0: that you were and the craft of cartooning? You know, I think... If I could go back now and direct my young self, I I would have been best served by going to a commercial art school, a design school, something like Pratt, although I probably wouldn't have wanted to compete at Pratt, but, you know, some, some commercial art school. Because what I also started to do during this time to make extra money was graphic design, because I'm working at the newspaper. They need little ads designed. They need little funny taglines written, you know, I start doing that. And that actually ended up being the thing that supported me eventually. I think it's really was a combination of my ability to doodle and my love of writing and storytelling that, that made it happen. I had a, still had a learning curve about cartooning. I actually bought these books at a used bookstore called your career in cartooning and behind the strips. These books were written by people like Mort Walker who did Beetle Bailey. And because this is pre-computer, they had very specific, this is the material you use. This is how you do cross-hatching. This is how you draw perspective. This is, you know, so a lot of which I knew, but I didn't know the craft of cartooning very well. And I had to learn as I went along, but you know, basically I consider myself a self-taught cartoonist because you know, that's where it went, but it's the only thing I've ever done in my life where I lose track of time. And I realized one night when I was working late, I always worked late at night because I had small children, right? So I'm working after they go to bed. And it's like one in the morning. And I realize all of a sudden that I am freezing cold because the heat's gone off in the house. And I had not noticed in all that time because I was doing this thing that just made me completely disappear into my head. And that was when I knew it was really the thing that I wanted to pursue, you know, to focus on. And of course, it was an incredibly naive long shot to think I could get syndicated because knowing what I know now, it's like saying, I think I'll play the lottery, you know. (laughs)
1: Well, and even today, there are only what a, a dozen out of about 250 syndicated cartoonists that are female had to be much worse odds back then.
0: Oh, yeah. I think there were, yeah. I, I think there were four back then. And yes, and even just 250 syndicated cartoonists. I mean, that's a 250 number. people in the world doing what you're doing, you know? Yeah. That's a very much a long shot. Yeah. So.
1: I read somewhere in an interview you gave a, a couple of fun factoids about this time in your life that I'd be love to have you amplify on. You divorced. Your maiden name was not Elliot. Is that right? So when you divorced, you did not switch to your previous name. You became Jan
0: Elliot. What's the story there? I didn't want my maiden name. My maiden name was Buell, and uh, I grew up with the nickname Beulah Witch. And, you know, I, I just was not a name I was attached to. And I didn't want Gravelin, although I kept it as my middle name for a lot of years because it was my daughter's name. I was just looking for my own identity. Until the time that I got divorced, I had never lived alone. And I just wanted something that was mine. And I had been studying my my very favorite class when I was in college. We studied Middlemarch by George Eliot and I loved that she picked, you know, Mary Ann Evans was her real name, but she had to publish under a pseudonym and she picked Eliot because it she liked how it rolled off the tongue. And I thought Eliot was I well, first of all, I admired her so much. She was such a brilliant woman and so much smarter than her time and smarter than anyone would give credit to a woman of her time and smart in so many ways. I mean, she did scientific translation. She wrote the greatest English novel ever written. She, you know, she was brilliant and also not attractive, which neither was Dickens, but somehow that seems to come up constantly when people talk about George Eliot. Oh, and she was ugly. It's like, well, (laughs) <laughs> what yeah. difference does that make, but okay <laughs> so i just I just had a real affinity for her, and I just decided I would be Elliot, so I took Elliot for me. That's fabulous. you know in
1: athletics you hear so often, athletes visualize their full performance to sort of hone their their mental skills and their muscle skills, and I think the story is that you. I'd like to know when in your time frame it was that you wrote one of your strips imagining or dreaming of the day that maybe you'd actually be in the big funny pages and you photocopied it and shrank it down. I did. Tell me that story. Uh,
0: Yes, I, I took a page of the newspaper funnies and I put it on my door, my bedroom door, taped it up there. And then I took one of my strips and I photocopied it down and kind of badly so that it would look dirty, like newsprint does, you know, (laughs) and I got it to the size and then I, I cut it out and I don't know which strip I covered up for myself, but I pasted it in there as a visualization there, there I am someday. I'll be on
1: that page someday. (laughs)
0: someday That's going to be me.
1: Yeah. (laughs) You know, I, I came across one other story you told, I think it was in a, some sort of Q and a interview that you did about another comic strip I used to read growing up, Brenda Starr, by Dale Messick, which I always took to be a man and it had these sort of adventurous and you know dramatic kind of themes to it. But I remember even as a young girl reading that and somehow dimly being struck by how the character and in particular how Brenda Starr was written. And I was it was not as two dimensional a female character as one might commonly see, you know, remember kind of marveling that who is this man? Who is this man that he can write this so well? Who who <laughs> was that man?
0: Oh, lo and behold, it was a woman. <laughs> <laughs> yes. You know, Dale Messick, her her name was Dahlia. And in the late 40s, early 50s, when all the men were coming back from the war, and that's when the great syndication you know, wave hit with um, Dennis the Menace and Beetle Bailey and all those early strips. And there was lots of room because every city had multiple newspapers and comics were really popular. And so there was lots of room in this field. She was also um, a small and very beautiful woman. She she was red haired like Brenda Starr, nicely built and, you know, just a very pretty woman. And she got kind of patted on the head every time she went to see, because you would present these things in person in those days, you had to be in New York, that's where all the syndicates were, you went into their offices, and she would get a pat on the head and probably a pat on the butt for all I know. Um, (laughs) And, you know, they'd say, gosh, this is nice work, honey, but, you know, whatever. So one day, she just decided to be Dale, and she mailed her work in, instead of going in in person. And got a contract back. Wow. And if that isn't clear, you know, yeah, <laughs> so clear. But, you know, if you think about Brenda Starr, one of the brilliant things she did is that, you know, Brenda was beautiful and sexy, and she worked in this newspaper office, which was exciting and interesting. And there's always a push, you know, well, she needs a boyfriend or, is she going to go down the path to get married eventually and dale invented this thing of this this man she was in love with who was never there he was always out in the world he would send her an orchid and then she'd know he was alive somewhere and he would show up every now and then but the, you know i don't know if he worked for the cia or what he did but you know he was a ghost he was but she had him she was in love She had him. She checked all the boxes. Yes, Yes. exactly.
1: (laughs) She was not a disconcerting woman. It all made sense. Yes. And since he's away, look what she gets to do.
0: (laughs) I don't know if you ever noticed, but Dale also gave us um, Hank. Do you remember the character Hank? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. You know, looking back, it's like when I was nine, I wouldn't have said, oh, Hank's a lesbian. But now I look at it, it's like, oh, Hank's a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't
1: know if that penny dropped quite that way for me <laughs> in no, my uh, younger days. But, no. No. Yeah. Yeah.
0: But I admired um, besides the fact that she had great art skill, I just I admired how she wrote, you know, this bold, but uh, it was important to Dale that that Brenda was also sexy. You know, she really enjoyed that aspect of it. And and that you could be sexy and pretty and smart and bold. And have some
1: independence. Yes. So Patience and Sarah run for two years and you sort of getting into the craft of cartooning. And how did that what are the steps between Patience and Sarah and
0: Sister City, which became Stone Soup? Yes. At that in that same time frame when I had put the new funny pages on the back of my door, I was writing to anybody. I could find, you know, get an address for basically any cartoonist, any, you know, for advice for criticism. And one of the people I wrote to was Nicole Hollander, cartoonist who wrote a comic strip called Sylvia. And in the 80s, she had, she was extremely successful in the 80s. And that's where we are now time-wise, because um Sylvia had been turned into all kinds of greeting cards and calendars. And it was just, she's the one that coined the phrase, a woman needs a man like a fish needs a bicycle. Aha. <laughs> yeah. And Sylvia was this, you know, raunchy, feminist, uh, snarky character. So I wrote to Nicole, and she lived in Chicago at the time. And lo and behold, she invited me to a conference in New York that was by an organization, I think, called the Cartoonist Guild. And they were going to be featuring the work of women. The whole focus of the conference was the work of women could I come? So I managed to get myself to New York by selling originals. Oh, that's when I think about it now. I asked people to give me $25 for a drawing to buy a plane ticket. And uh, that happened. And then I had a friend in New York who was becoming a conductor and he had a studio apartment that I could stay in, didn't have to get a hotel. And at that conference, I Met some amazing people like Nicole Hollander and George Booth, Mort Walker, the Beetle Bailey guy, Trina Robbins, and Selby Kelly, who was married to Walt Kelly, who wrote Pogo. It was just and it was just incredible. I and and my work was you know shown up there on the screen you know as as part of this whole thing, but I also met a syndicate person from United Media. She liked what she saw, and when I got home there was a contract in the mail for me for syndication. Wow. I know. Wow. Kapow. So I opened up the envelope and I read it. And the very first paragraph said that United Media Syndicate would own my work and anything I did artistically in perpetuity. Uh, no, they were. <laughs> no. Wait a minute. No. So You know, I just thought, well, I'll just negotiate that. You know, I'm not doing that. And I tried to negotiate that point and they just slammed the door in my face. It was just, oh, I'm sorry. Who do you think you are? You know? Yeah. So I called Mort Walker. He had actually kindly given me his phone number and said, you know, if you need advice, help. And I called him and he said, he said, well, that is a very bad contract. And it might be the only one you ever get and it's like well th- there's a sophie's choice of sorts yeah. you know i mean what do i do with that and you know i was young enough and idealistic enough that i just said screw it and turned it down i just wasn't going to give up i mean this at this point i'm writing about myself i'm you know this is so personal to me i'm not giving it away
1: you know yeah this, this is you i mean it's your story and your inspiration and your creative
0: talents Yeah. And theoretically, you know, if if you give away your copyright, they can fire you and just pay someone else to do your work. You know, I mean, you have no power. So at least not in the beginning. So that kind of broke my heart. And so I spent the next five years pursuing a real job uh, in graphic design and advertising, which I had been slowly working my way into, and I could make decent money at. At this point, you know, my children are I don't know, one of my daughters is 11 by now or 12, and already looking at me cross-eyed saying, I hope you realize I want to go to a good college, mom. <laughs> Get your act together, girl. Yeah, exactly.
1: <laughs> so she's so she's really archetype of Holly. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, know.
0: I love it. Yeah. So, you know, for five years, I just, uh, I, I worked in graphic design, but patient and Sarah had legs and it, I kept getting requests for reprints. it ended up in a few parenting books, um, some single parent magazines it, it just sort of had life so I you know I didn't forget about it entirely. And then um, in 1988 I remarried and when I got married I thought and I'm no longer the sole breadwinner I thought, I can't quit my job, but I might have more psychic energy for starting over with a new strip. And at that time, I was friends with a woman named Val. We had children the same age because we had both been young mothers. So we both, in 1988, had 18-year-olds that were heading out into the world. And she really had always wanted to write a novel. And I wanted to start a new comic strip. So we agreed to meet once a week for lunch and kind of recreate that weekly deadline that I had with my friend, Cynthia, although we weren't going to be presenting work to each other. We didn't want to be a critique group. We just wanted to be accountable to someone, Mm -hmm. you know, what have you gotten done? What, why didn't you get anything done? You know? Yeah. And I spent about eight months working on a, a new version of, it really was Patience and Sarah, but. You know, I changed the premise. I just it it just grew bigger. and and it was I made those two women sisters. Um, that was kind of based on a time when I lived with a girlfriend who was having a baby and needed a place to live. She was a single mom also having a baby and needed a place. She was an old family friend, and we shared a house together. So, even though she wasn't my sister, I kind of based it on that. Uh. Max was based on, uh, a little boy that was born into a house where I was working as a graphic designer for someone who had his advertising agency in in his home. And this little boy with dandelion hair that went straight up, you know, <laughs> came into the world. And so I kind of modeled Max after him. And I just made a bigger cast, came up with the idea of the cranky grandma. Grandma was very different in the beginning because I modeled her after my own mother who was a cranky woman. <laughs> <laughs> my mother was really bright and really, you know, my mother was one of those women who should have been a working woman. And she was eventually a working woman. but I, I you know, she was she was cranky. I was close to her, but she was cranky. So <laughs> I kind of modeled uh, grandma on her. And I you know, I spent eight months writing strips and in sort of developing this and then going into our local newspaper, the 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 daily newspaper. And at that time, we didn't have bomb threats, so you could just go up the stairs to the editorial room, you know, and say, Can I speak with so and so? And they looked at my work, you know, he was a very nice man, looked at my work, you know, almost anytime I brought any in, gave me some ideas, but no commitment. And then, as happens, there was an editorial change, and uh, he was still there, but he got a new boss. And his boss was managing editor, he was younger, he was interested in making some changes and he liked the idea of trying to launch a comic strip, you know, a comic artist. So somehow, uh, you know, with enough persistence, uh, I think I spent another eight months going in there every couple of weeks with new work, they decided to give me a shot. And and it was very generous when you think that it's a daily newspaper, they can't put me on the funny pages. So they have to come up with a spot for me. Ah. Yeah. You know, that is off the page. So they I was in a Sunday feature section called Oregon Life. And it's really the turning point in my career, because once I had, again, a weekly deadline, I'm creating work every week. I'm also now in a newspaper that's that has some renown in the United States. It was an award winning newspaper. It was a family owned newspaper, independent newspaper. Um, Syndicates were very, very familiar with it, you know, of course. So, um, that was a, a huge stepping stone. I immediately started sending my work every every six months. I had 21 new strips to send to to the syndicates and any syndicate I could find. But I focused on Universal Press Syndicate because they had the opposite copyright opinion that my first syndicate had.
1: So if you get in a syndicate, they they have tentacles into multiple newspapers. Is, is that the idea? So you'll get... Yes. And the financial construct must have something to do with how many papers your strip appears in?
0: Yes. So a syndicate, a daily newspaper isn't inclined to buy freelance material from individuals because they need to know that the material is going to be there when they need it there. You know, they may hire someone to be their own political cartoonist or their own columnist, but they have them on salary. But as far as basically a freelancer like myself, they're they're not inclined to want to do that. And that's where syndicates come in. They're like they're our agent, and they sign contracts with newspapers and guarantee that the work will be there and kind of manage you. Manage me, exactly. Manage me and and you sign a very long contract with the syndicate. My initial one was 20 years. Wow. Yeah. It's a little gulp inducing, Yeah, um, <laughs> but uh, a good contract has clauses where y- you might, you won't be trapped if the money's not good or whatever, you know? Yeah. So the only way you're going to end up in multiple newspapers is to get yourself into a syndicate, get yourself. It's very much like trying to get a good Hollywood agent. Right. So I started sending work every six months to lee salem at universal press syndicate he was the editorial director and i did not get a contract back from him but i got an actual letter and i can tell you that over the 15 you know the 10 years we're talking about so far yeah the rejection letters are reject you know it how many i got and how you know, they're not even signed half the time. It might just be a postcard that says, you know, not uh, not suitable for us at this time or whatever. Yeah. So to, to get a letter on letterhead from someone with a signature that says, this is what we liked and this is what we didn't like. And have you thought about blah, blah, blah. That's huge helpful. All right. Yeah, it's very helpful. So I just stuck with him and he's the person I sent work to um, every six months for four years. And at the end of the fourth year, I'm like, now Val and I are still having lunch every week. She's been such a good friend to me. I've named my main character after her. (laughs) We set goals at the beginning of every year. That's part of our, you know, commitment to each other. My goal for that following year, after, after four years of submitting was, I'm getting syndicated this year with or without these people. I mean, I just I'm becoming a a cartoonist full time somehow, you know, because I'm not getting any younger by now. You know, I kind of composed that in a letter to him. I said, you know, I so appreciate all the feedback, but you know what? This is my year. I intend to become a full time cartoonist with or without you. I sent that off and I and I liked that this is my year thing. So I started sending him a letter every two weeks with new justification for why this was my year, you know. Persistence, persistence, persistence. Things that were happening in popular culture, for instance. There were a lot of shows about single moms. And one of the things, the objections I'd had along the way from King Features Syndicate was, well, doesn't she need a boyfriend? It seems kind of depressing, a
1: divorced (laughs) mom, you know. Well, no romantic prospects.
0: Yeah, right. (laughs) God forbid anybody would think they were gay. I don't know, you know. (laughs) you know I say well you know so grace under fire and one day at a time there were these very successful shows on television about single moms and so I want to be the grace under fire of the funny pages you know and I did that for three months and lo and behold I got an invitation to come and visit them and I called the person who who was making the arrangements and I said do you know why I'm coming and she said well I don't think you're coming so they can tell you no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, you said once, I remember that the difference, the primary difference between unsuccessful cartoonists and successful ones is the successful ones don't give up after the first rounds of no.
0: <laughs> yes. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. And if, you know, anyone listening to this, you can't really do the math because I haven't given specific years, but from the time I first you know, had this idea, if I could become a syndicated cartoonist, I could work from home and not have to worry about daycare for my children until the time I actually got syndicated was 16 years. Wow. So, you know, I did lots of other things along the way because I had to, but it was something that I just felt in my gut. I just, it was the one thing I really wanted to do. And fortunately my husband did not think I was crazy. My <laughs> And I believe me, I asked him more than once, do you think I'm crazy? He's like, no. So finally in 1994, they put me on a development contract, which was a little tiny bit of money. I was to produce 20 strips a month. Yeah. Is that right? 20 strips a month. Yeah. God, I can't believe I did that now that I think about it. And they gave me $200 a month for that. But they didn't have to be finished art. They were just sketches. They just wanted to see if I could produce enough ideas. I did that and they were happy. And then we took that work and turned it into finished work, which became part of a sales kit, which then in the fall of 1995, they took out on the road and proceeded to, to try and sell. And the big break I got there was that Bill Watterson retired Kelvin and Hobbes.
1: Ah, open a slot
0: on the page. Open 2,500 slots, yeah. Wow. Yeah, so quite a number of us got a boost off of that, and you basically need 100 papers to make a living, and I think I had 100 papers after the first six months. Wow. Walk us through,
1: I have no concept, from you getting an idea to starting a first sketch to the artwork and text being ready to send in for production. What's the kind of timeline? Are we talking a day, two days, a week?
0: Um, Well, so I, a lot of cartoonists, everybody works differently. I like to do a whole week of work at once. So I would spend the first day of the week just writing. And I would either write at home or I'll go sit in a coffee shop or somewhere. Again, this little scattered mind of mine could focus better if there was noise around me. Right. So, uh, you know, like hone in and I would just write and write and write and try to have maybe 12 or 14 gags. So you're writing, you're writing gags,
1: you're writing, Joan says this and Val says that and Max chimes in. Okay.
0: I'm writing little tiny scripts, you know, okay. with punchlines, punch I hope are funny, you know. <laughs> And the nice thing about writing with characters that repeat themselves is you can write continuums. You know, you can have you can develop a story over a week or two if you want. And I was coached by Lynn Johnston, who writes for better or for worse, that it will really it carries you well because you don't have to necessarily be ha ha funny every single day if you're taking your readers through a storyline that's interesting to them.
1: Yeah. You did that superbly. I loved your storylines. Thank you. I
0: loved writing my storylines. I really did. So I would spend, you know, Monday just writing and trying to not be brain dead. And Tuesday, I would sit with that notebook and sketch all those ideas up to try because then the drawing is the other half, you know, to try and propel the drawing reinforces the gag. Bill Watterson once said, if if it's a good gag, I don't worry very much about the artwork. But if it's a mediocre gag, I go to hell on the artwork. So. <laughs> So then I when I have my sketches done, I, I'm very wary of uh, letting a lot of people read things. Criticism can be great. It can also lead you completely astray. You know, get you off what's what's true for you. So, the only person I ever let read my work was my husband Ted, partly because we share the same sense of humor, partly because he had no interest in trying to tell me what would be funnier. The deal was he just wrote a number on the way ah, It's just a four. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and, and our numbers were one, two, and three, three was printed. Two was, it's pretty good. And one was, I don't know what you're trying to do here. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I and love then it. that way there's like no emotion, you know, it's just, did it make you laugh? Did it make you chuckle? Did it lay flat, you know? Yep. And then I would take his thoughts and you know occasionally I would disagree with him because sometimes it was once in a once in a while it would be kind of a female thing you know yeah and I had a female editor at the syndicate and I would run those by her and say how do you how do you read this but mostly I would you know take him and then I would take the best of those the best six of those and turn them into my six dailies and that took pretty much four days all that whole process And then on the fifth day, I would from start to finish do a Sunday. So think of the idea in the morning, one idea, flesh it out and ink it and color it and, you know, get it in. And with luck, I was done by Friday night, but I worked a lot of Saturdays.
1: (laughs) I bet you did. So if someone's trying to become a cartoonist and get into the business now, I mean, the daily papers are drying up. There's not the diversity of ownership and, you know, family owned and locally owned. You know, unlike columnists, when a cartoonist dies or retires, sometimes the syndicate just runs oldies. The Bill Watterson spot doesn't open up for a new artist. It just gets replaced with old Bill Watterson's. What is the world of cartooning today? What, What would your advice be to someone who's in high school doodling away and has dreams of cartooning? Go
0: online, young woman, go online. (laughs) I think that the world of cartooning has shifted online. There are so many incredibly talented cartoonists with work online. Some of them have figured out how to monetize it. The thing about being online is that, first of all, you don't have any censors. So sometimes you can tackle subjects that newspapers won't let you tackle. Newspapers are very conservative. You also have no limit to your size or form. You can do anything. You know, you could be writing a graphic novel and releasing it one page a week if you want. The artwork can be amazing because you're not limited to this tiny little space. I know that there are cartoonists, there are still cartoonists who've been doing online strips who have transitioned to newspapers, Phoebe and her unicorn is one of those strips I talked with her when she was in development I think she was probably that that was the only cartoon that my syndicate brought out that whole year I mean you know they used to bring out three or four every quarter so again it's a really slim chance but that is an example of a cartoon that went from online to newspapers newspapers still provide good income for cartoonists if you're lucky enough to get there Um, but she also has all kinds of books Phoebe and her unicorn lends itself to Comic-Con appearances, things like that. So, you know, I think for but I think for most cartoonists, really, the online world, the, the comic book world is enormous right now. Comics and graphic novels. There's so much room and it is so gender neutral. It, you know, there are at least as many women in the comic book world now as men. And that was not always the case. Lots of women in graphic novels. Lots of women working together um, in studios. So I think newspaper comics. I you know I would I would not advise anyone to to set that as a goal, but it's not impossible. Yeah, they they do still release a new strip every now and then. You know.
1: So you retired Joan and Val and Holly and Alex and Max in 2020, which. Means Jan has retired, <laughs> and so what's what's Jan doing these days where is where is art in your life these days? Where is travel i I know Grandma went to Africa on a couple of the strips, and that was a reflection
0: of travels you were doing in Africa. Everything Grandma did in those later strips, yeah when I became a grandmother, Grandma evolved into me. aha. I realized I needed a not a cranky grandma. i I mean, she's Still had an edge but you know
1: but she's Alex's you know best defender
0: I mean I, I love that interplay yeah, yeah Alex's best defender um so yes yeah, so I went to Thailand with Habitat for Humanity and I went to Haiti with Habitat for Humanity and one way to keep up on my deadlines was to just make a storyline where grandma went to Thailand and Haiti also and then of course she went to Africa she went to Cape Town like I've done.
1: Totally freaking out Val and Joe.
0: Oh yeah, yeah totally yeah <laughs> As I did my own daughter, yes. <laughs> I love it. You're going where? For how long? With who? With who? So, well, I leave for Zimbabwe in three weeks from today. All right. I know. I'm going to Zimbabwe on safari, and then I'm going to Cape Town to stay with friends for a week. Uh, the COVID disaster put a real kibosh on my retirement plans because the day I retired, I was planning on starting to buy plane tickets. And I mean, travel is probably my main passion. I just, I love to travel. And at this point, Africa is my main draw, although I have wonderful friends in Scotland and and France and my daughter in Germany. And so there's lots of places I can go and want to go. I had to bide my time last year. Wait, wait, wait. So this is my first trip. Artistically, um, I'm still doodling. I it's it's cliche. I'm I'm sorry, I'm gonna disappoint somebody, but one of the things I I took up about, well, okay, when Trump got elected, I decided I had to learn to knit so I could make that pink pussy hat. <laughs> So I learned to knit and made that hat, and then started making hats for other people because everybody wanted the pink pussy hat. Everybody I knew, and I became addicted to knitting. And knitting is really great for plane flights. Yes, indeed. Long plane flights. So I've actually spent you know a lot of time loving the colors, loving putting together the colors, learning to knit. I've knit a million hats and scarves, but now I'm onto sweaters and. It's just this crafty part of myself just loves doing handwork again. My first husband, who lives 10 blocks away, has re-established our pottery studio. He's set everything back. Oh, wow. Has a beautiful kiln, and he keeps bugging me. You know, when are you going to come up and make some pots? So I'm debating. I may go back and try my hand at ceramics again, since he's got it all there. That would be a joy. Yeah, but my drawing at this point is mostly, you know, when you when you do something for a living, it is bus not necessarily the thing you want to do for fun. Busman's holiday, right? The busman's holiday, yeah. yeah. And as much as I loved doing my strip, honestly, and loved the feel of finishing a drawing, there's a, there's a wonderful quote from Virginia Woolf, I think it goes, I hate writing, but I love having written. Yes. <laughs> There were many days when I hated working on the strip, but I loved having done it, you know, when it was finished. and in the beginning, I used to lay the strips out on the floor and just look at them and make sure there weren't any mistakes, but just like gaze over my accomplishment, you know. so I, I love doing it, but I'm really I'm really done it. You know, I did it for twenty five years total, and it was grand. But at this point I'm focusing on getting the archive all to Columbus, to the Billy Ireland Cartoon Art Museum and we will be delighted to have it. Yes, yes. It's uh, half of it's gone and half of it of course COVID interrupted that as well, but half of it will go again in this fall I think we're going to get the rest there. And they've got a show on right now on dogs that dogs and strips that has well, a few of my strips and it. it's biscuit. The, <laughs> yeah, biscuit, biscuit. You know, I still draw I still people love getting stone soup things, so I you know still make birthday cards for people and things like that, but um, really I'm enjoying farting around and getting ready to travel again. And I really love photography. So looking at a new camera right now for my trip to Zimbabwe. No moss growing under your feet. No moss growing under my feet. And, you know, I, I just, I can't actually, I, I've been working since I was 15 years old and I have had five years off in that time when my children were small and, to have this amazing time that every day I can just go, huh, what sounds fun today?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, it is very well deserved, if for countless reasons, but not least of which the joy and laughter that you have brought into so many people's lives over so many days and so many ways. I have the Hubble strip you gave me still (sighs) up on my wall. And my favorite line of all the lines, all the great lines in Stone Soup, my favorite line of all was uh, first the Chardonnay, then the family drama. <laughs> <laughs> brilliant. Just brilliant stuff, Jan. And, <laughs> and, and most of all, I treasure the, the friendship that we've built over the years and the times we've had to laugh together and create, get into good mischief together.
0: Hey, listen, I have on my shelves the the uh, medallion you gave me, the postcard you sent me from the South Pole. Cap, yep. If I could somehow have framed the text you sent me from there, I would have. Because <laughs> <laughs> that was so fun. Guess where I am. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, my dear, thank you so much for spending this hour with us. If you've never seen Stone Soup, somehow, whatever rock you were under, Go to the Library of Congress, look it up online, buy one of the books, uh, and have yourself a really great laugh with a really delightful family created by the very delightful Jan Elliott.
0: Oh, thank you so much. Thank you, Kathy. It's been wonderful.
1: Thanks so much for joining me on today's mission. For more solo shows and deep dives with incredible guests, along with all the ways to get the podcast and much more, head over to com.